Hi, this is David Sachs, and welcome to Spiritual Tools for an Outrageous World. Every week we do a little couples therapy between us and God. It's a chance to deepen and explore our most important relationship. Okay, I'm glad you're here. It's been a a crazy bunch of days. I left last Saturday night, last Motei Shabbos, for the airport at... Well, I got up to leave for the airport at 3.45 in the morning, and and I went to, to Vilna. And then we, we drove from Vilna through Latvia till we got to Poland. And then when we were in Poland, we drove through Slovakia till we got to Hungary. And then on Thursday night of this past week, from Reb Shaila's kever, Reb Shaila of Kerister, one of the great, great tzaddikim, amazing, amazing, amazing tzaddik, really unique. I left his kever at about two in the morning and started the drive back toward the airport in Budapest and then to Amsterdam. And then I was back in Los Angeles for Shabbos. It's such a reminder of how precious every single moment is and how much can be accomplished in in a single moment. Like we were sort of like brainwashed by the mundane and, and our imaginations and our sense of possibility get swallowed up by the rhythms of the routine. And we forget about what a single moment is in time and what can be done in a single moment. And then when you can thread together moments on top of moments on top of moments on top of moments, that's what this trip was. I did a very similar trip to this last year, also at this time. And what was remarkable was that that trip was so like once in a lifetime. And what was so amazing about this trip was that it was a continuation of last trip. It was like one long trip. There was some overlap, but we went to a lot of new places. We were by the Kfarim, the grave sites of the Vilna Gon, Reb Chaim Ozer. He's the one who was the head of Lithuanian Jewry before World War II. He's the one who gave smicha to the Chovitz Chaim. We were by Rav Elchanan Specter. We were by the Bnei Saschar. We were by the Rogachover Rebbe. The Rogachover Rebbe was the one who gave smicha to the last Lubavitcher Rebbe. And he's buried right next to the Or Sameach. That was in Dvinsk. We were in Dvinsk. We were the kever of the Rimenover Rebbe and the Ropschitzer Rebbe. We were in Pshisk. We were by the kever of the Pshiska Rebbe and by, by the Yiddakodesh. And we were also by, as I mentioned, Reb Shail of Kerister. And how can I forget the Radishitzer Rebbe. He's not as well known today, but it was, you know, 
a, a, a very, very, very great tzaddik. And, and to my surprise, probably the strongest reaction that I had at any of the kfarim that we, that, that we visited and prayed at was by the Radishitzer Rebbe. So I'm really anxious to, to learn more about him in the Ohel. And Ohel is the, the strict definition is, would be a tent, but around the grave of certain great, great Rebbe's, they make a building. And they really vary in terms of personalities, what these, what these Ohels are like. Like some of them are sort of these crumbling ruins, really, old stone kind of areas where just the tombstone sits very unadorned, and then hanging on the walls around, there might be some people who have traveled through who have put their name, like, please pray for me, like on a, a Xerox sheet, you know, like they've, they're posting it wherever they go, which is heartbreaking, heartbreaking, you know? And maybe you'll have in, in some of the more well-appointed ones, even the extremely spare ones, like a little bucket of tea light candles that you can light by the grave of the tzaddik. M- many don't have that. You have copies of Tehillim, the book of Psalms, that are sort of like arranged about so people can say Tehillim, which is sort of like the, the classic thing to do before you make your supplications to Hashem. The idea is, for those of you who are not familiar with this great Jewish pastime of visiting graves, <laughs> like, how do Jews have fun? We go to the cemetery. <laughs> you know, it, it's a little crazy if you think about it. But at the same time, it says in the Gomorrah that the tzaddikim are, are more alive after they leave this world. So, and, and not only that, but in contrast to, to so many of us who are quote-unquote alive, but really we're the walking dead. And I heard Reb Shlomo say it so beautifully. Who are the people who are alive in this world and who are the people who aren't? What, do, what does it mean to be alive? It means that there's a you above and there's a you below. And the people who are alive in this world are connected to the you above. If you are connected to this higher aspect of yourself, that's the definition of being alive. If you are disconnected from the higher aspect of yourself, you might be walking around and, you know, paying your electrical bill and like chewing food, but your mom is dead. You're dead. So... So as much as it might seem, perhaps, to, the, to those who are not kind of like steeped in these ideas, perhaps morbid to, 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 to go to grave sites, there's, there's nothing morbid about it because you're going to a place of life. So, so yeah, just to set the scene for you, I was on a bus with about 25 guys and it was one, and, and we were spending so many hours on the bus, hours and hours and hours on the bus, just traveling from place to place. It was one five-day-long fabrengen. 
if you're familiar with, with that word, which is, it was just drinking and singing. And like, there was literally a guy doing somersaults down the narrow aisle of the bus. I'm, I'm not making it up. Sometimes over the table in the back that was filled with bottles, just doing somersaults. And people with open sfarim and like real classic hardcore Torah books just having shirim for hours and hours and days and days. It was just, and then we would eat, be eating dinner at 2 a.m., 2 in the morning. That's the, and no one was questioning anything. You know, most people didn't know where the next stop was or, or even what the significance of this, of this gravesite was or who this holy person was. You know, that, that, that was kind of my privilege at many of the places to be able to kind of say a few words about who this person was. And, and the, the people that we were visiting are people... Tzaddikim, that I, I have such a strong soul connection to because I've been learning their Torahs for, for decades, really over a period of decades. And on the one hand, again, for those people who are not familiar or with the idea of going to the gravesite of a tzaddik, we, we don't pray to the tzaddik, right? Because there's only one God and you have a direct connection with Hashem. These are very hardcore premises of Judaism. There, we don't say our God is stronger than your God to other religions. We say there is no other God. There is only one God. So, so then what's the role of the idea of, of praying to the tzaddik? Well, that's a very deep question and there are many answers to it, but I'll just give you the, the basic idea. The basic idea is that we have something called a lose bone, okay? Now this is, this is phenomenal. The lose bone is the part of your body which is literally indestructible. In other words, most people, and I'll tell you two big exceptions in a moment, but most people, when they are interned, I think that's the right word, when they're buried, they basically turn to dust. Over time, you turn to dust. As they say, ashes to ashes, dust to dust. I don't know if that's a verse in the Torah or if that's like from some like haunted house movie. I don't know, but, but anyway. The idea is that most everyone turns to dust. With one exception, your loose bone. And I'll tell you something just really like, like really intense right now. The Nazis, Yamach Shaman, their name should be erased. After they killed us, after they put us in ovens, there was a problem of, we had, there were so many bones. What are you gonna do with all of the bones? And I have a picture right now on my phone. I'll show it to you if you want to see it. They brought in, it's a heavy piece of machinery that looks like an, like a, an earth mover, big piece of machinery. That was a bone crusher. 
because the bones were piling up too high. Let me tell you something about Vilna, about Lithuania. Do you know what percentage of Vilna was exterminated by the Nazis? Approximately 95%. Do you know what the seat of the highest Talmud learning in the world was? Maybe since the times of Gomorrah, 2,000 years ago, Vilna. So when you think of the idea of evil, they tried to crush our loose bone. But the loose bone can't be crushed. It's indestructible. So what, what is the significance of the loose bone? It's from that place that in the end of days, the righteous will be revivified. What we call techias hamesim. And in the loose bone, there's an element of the nefesh that's a little piece of the soul remains of the person, of the tzaddik, of all those who are going to come back. And it's attached to the loose bone. And a heavenly light from the highest unbroken light an area, I'll get a little technical with you, called the Gimel Rishonos. You can file that away. It's not for now. But the highest, highest light comes down and it touches the loose bone and that's the connection where we're brought back to life. Now, it says in Gomorrah Sanhedrin, for those who have trouble wrapping their minds around this idea of techias hamesim, right? And by the way, just so you know, this is not an extra credit Kabbalistic idea. This is the idea that the righteous will be brought back to life in the end of days. This is normative Judaism, Judaism 101. So much so that it says in Gomorrah Sanhedrin that if one denies this precept, they question whether you have a share in the world to come or not. This is an essential idea in Torah. And so the Gomorrah gives many different explanations to try to help people feel more comfortable with this idea, the reality of this idea. First of all, we know from all sorts of things now, like Jurassic Park, right? And, but it's, they, they do it where they, they get the DNA from fossils and they're actually able to recreate certain things from the DNA from fossils. So, so already we see elements of this going on in terms of science. I don't know if you saw this news headline, you may have missed it, but they found like, like a little, I don't even know what the word is, germ. Let's go with germ for now. I know that's not the correct scientific term, but they found a germ of beer, B-E-E-R, like what you drink from ancient times, and they're now selling ancient beer in Israel today, that they've been able to reconstruct this recipe from, from like this little, I don't even know what it is, this molecule, yeah, this little molecule of ancient beer, and you can buy ancient beer today. So, so the Gomorrah says, 
that think of blades of grass. That's one example that they give. How many blades of grass sprout in the world every single day? I'm going to say billions. It may be more. So what, what happens? And this is just with grass, but, but it happens with every plant. You plant a seed. Imagine your body is the seed. You plant a seed underground. The seed disintegrates. Imagine the body disintegrating. And then a little green thing pokes through the soil, doesn't it? That's from the Gomorrah. That's from the Gomorrah. In other words, you want a very meat and potatoes, so to speak, understanding of Techias Amesim? Look no further. But now how about a conceptual explanation of being brought back, right? Listen to this, again, from the Gomorrah. What, what is harder to do? Make something out of nothing? Or once something is already made and it breaks to fix it. So the harder thing to do is to make something out of nothing. It didn't exist before. How do you bring something into the world that was nothingness? But once it's there, then all of a sudden you have a template and you can bring it back. So the Gomorrah says, that's us. Before we were born, we didn't exist. So if God can make you exist when you didn't exist, if God can make you you when there was no such thing as you, once there's already a you, it's very easy to make you again. <laughs> In other words, we say, wow, it's so wild, being brought back from the dead in the end of days, that's so wild, I don't know if I believe that. But you right now are a bigger miracle than that. Why not question your own existence? Why not just walking around say, I can't possibly exist? <laughs> but you know that you do exist. So if you already know that you exist, it's not so hard to understand that you're gonna to continue to exist. That's the Gomorrah. So, but I want to talk about another level, which is this idea that I had in my mind. So, so you go to the grave of a tzaddik because the tzaddik is still there. Now, I told you I'd give you an, a, a couple of examples, and I visited two of them. Two of them were on the trip, and I, I left out one of these names, the Noam Elimelech. The Rebbe Reb Melech of Lezhensk. Now he's the, 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 the granddaddy of all the Rebbe's in Poland. And, and Poland was the headquarters of Hasidus in terms of numbers of Hasidim. He is the one who brought Hasidus to Poland. And you know, you have exalted names like the Chosev Lublin. The Chos of Lublin, who's now going to have students like the Kutzka Rebbe, right? And, and the Pshiska Rebbe, and you know, all these great Rebbe's the, are all students of the Chosa. The Chosa was a student of the Noam Elimelech. 
Just to give you an example of who the Noam Elimelech was. The Noam Elimelech is on top there. They dug up his grave. The Nazis dug up his grave. And it's approximately 200 years later. And he is 100% intact. The Soviets dug up the grave of the Vilna Gon approximately 200 years later. He was 100% intact. Not only that, but they said every single hair of his beard was in its proper place. And by the way, the Gomorrah addresses this in ancient times already. They ask the question, why do people disintegrate in the grave? Why? And you want to hear something unbelievable? They give an answer. They quote a verse which says, envy rots the bones. Which is heartbreaking. Which is heartbreaking. Because if you think of the percentage of people who, who turn to dust, that means whether we're in touch with it or not, most of us are living with envy. I'll tell you one of the holiest things I ever heard in my life. Toward the end of my father's life, he already was, you know, like really at the end. He said to me, with just such purity and truth and simplicity, he said, I am not jealous of anyone. And I don't know what prompted that. He just just said those words out of nowhere. And it was what an honor, what a privilege to hear those words. And what a privilege just to have a father who wasn't jealous of anyone. So when you go to a tzaddik's grave, one of the things that you do, remember, you're not praying to the tzaddik because there's only God. There's only one power. It's Hashem who's answering your prayers. But you pray in the merit of the tzaddik's mitzvot, all the tremendous things that he did, in the merit of those things, so to speak, that your prayer should be given rocket fuel, right? Your prayer should be given wings. But there's a, another level, which is because there's an aspect of the tzaddik that's still there, you actually get to have a meeting with the tzaddik himself. <laughs> and I had just read a story about someone who was a, a maskil. Now, the, the, the maskilim was a big movement, at, really at the time of the Hasidic revo revolution. The maskilim were really the secularists. They were the ones who were like leaving, leaving Judaism behind. And in English, it's called the enlightenment. I like to call it the endarkenment where everything was, could be logical. The, the premise is that everything could be logically explained. And one of the deepest things that I ever heard Reb Shlomo say is the world doesn't work in a one plus one equals two way. 
anyone who's been through, you don't even have to go through much of life. <laughs> anyone who's even had a taste of life knows that the world does not work in a one plus one equals two way. So, so the idea that you can premise your life on a way that if it's not logical, then I reject it, and therefore it must be superstition, is that's, that's, that's a level of rationality, but it's a massive swing and a miss. You know, unfortunately, the communist movement, when it was first started, attracted a lot of Jews, and a lot of religious Jews flocked to it. And a lot of, you know, great souls were just swallowed, were swallowed up. And we lost a lot of really, some of our best and our brightest to communism. And what was the appeal of communism? Because it had a very, very strong appeal. It was basically a secular utopian philosophy. In other words, it appealed to the idea that we can bring Mashiach now. And why should it be that one person owns the factory and all of the workers are essentially enslaved to the owner of the factory? And the owner of the factory makes all the money and everyone else is more or less in functional poverty. Why should that be? Let all of the workers own the factory together and then all the proceeds can be divided up equitably and, and this is the way that, that we can have real justice in the world. Now, when you hear the message put like that, you hear how that just like wakes your soul. It's like, yes, we can do it with our own hands. We're going to make the perfect society right now. Except it was all a trap. It was all a trap and basically it's like, okay, now, who's going to run this system? We need someone to run that system. Oh, I know who's going to run the system. The dictator who's now going to enslave everyone and start mass murdering everyone. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, somehow we didn't allow for that piece. Cut to 20 million dead later, right? Okay. So... This was kind of like a, a whip-flash moment for, for the Jewish people. Because all of a sudden, there was like, like new pathways and everything like that. And, you know, something... I, I once heard this phrase that I, I always like. Someone was talking about a person or whatever it is. And they said, he moves at glacial speed. <laughs> Which is like, meaning to say, that's slower than slow. You know, that's like, that's like a snail, like an Olympic, the 100-meter dash. That's the snail compared to a, a glacier. So Judaism moves a little bit at glacial speed in terms of adjusting to change. It adjusts. It does adjust. But it really has to kind of like think and absorb and, and process in a way that's often exceptionally frustrating to people. And so, 
And so the idea of all of modern science and modern thought and modern everything raining down on a society that's essentially been functioning the same way for 3,000 years and to expect it to adjust in the snap of a finger, right, is, is, is very, you know, you can understand how that's like the recipe for great conflict. And it was, and, and great conflict happened. We're, we're still living with that conflict. Because, remember, as the Rambam says, science and Torah can't disagree because the author of science is the author of the Torah. They're one and the same authors because <laughs> there's only one God. All science does is describe how Hashem does things. That's all science is. And then the Rambam goes on to say, if science and Torah disagree, you either have the science wrong or you have the Torah wrong. Because they can't disagree, because they're coming from the same source. Okay. But again, it, it's, one has to be patient and respectful of the process. Right? Of the, of, the, of the process of absorbing these new revelations. I'll tell you something very interesting. You have this idea of taking, in terms of birth, we've got all sorts of breakthroughs in terms of in vitro fertilization. And sometimes you can even take the eggs from one, one woman and, and, you know, fertilize them, if that's the right word, and then implant them in the womb of another woman. So then the question is, who is the mother? Is the mother the one who's the, it, it was her egg? Or is the mother the one who sort of develops it? So I heard that one of the ways now, what, what I'm trying, what I'm demonstrating right now is just one approach. I'm not saying this is the definitive approach, but just so you can think about it. One of the ways that, that they address this is with a case in the Talmud, which is, what if I take the branch of one fruit tree and I graft it onto an existing tree? Now, where does, who, who is the fruit from? Is it from the initial branch? Or is it from the tree that it's, graft, it's grafted onto? And that would be sort of like a very interesting question in terms of the mitzvah of Orla, where you're supposed to wait three years. You have to wait three years before you can eat the fruit from a tree. So if the branch has already gone through that three-year process and you can eat that fruit, but then you graft it onto a tree that hasn't gone through the three-year process, there are all sorts of interesting questions and it's totally parallel, the idea of the egg going into another womb. So based on those halachas about grafting fruit, that was one approach that the rabbis are now taking to try to understand modern medical miraculous science. 
But this is a process, and this takes time. So the Vilna Gaon knew all mathematics and science, and he wasn't the only one. He wasn't the only one. And you don't just see the Vilna Gaon. Like, the Vilna Gaon was in a room basically 24 hours a day learning Torah. He, he didn't sleep. He didn't sleep like, he slept like David Melech, King David. It says that David Melech would just like, go to, just from almost like exhaustion, just would drop off for a few moments and then he'd be back. You've probably experienced that in your lifetime. Hopefully not while driving, but that's an example of what I'm talking about, okay? Where you kind of just drop off and then you're back. That's how he would go through his days. He wouldn't sleep. Now, just to give you an example of the, who the Vilna... Imagine having the greatest genius mind. Like, I heard from Rabbi Beryl Wine before Albert Einstein... Like when I was growing up, and really this was already before my time, if people want to describe a, a, a kid who was like a genius, they would go, oh, he's a regular Albert Einstein. Albert Einstein was synonymous with genius. Well, what about the 200 years before Albert Einstein? People would say he's a regular Vilna Gaon. That was the household name to describe genius. So. He started from the earliest time in his life, worked harder than anyone else, to have the greatest mind. You have those three things together, you make history, as he did. And by the way, if you lived in Vilna and you had a, a shaila, you had a halacha question about your chicken, you didn't bring it to the Vilna Gon. <laughs> the Vilna Gon's not looking at your chicken. The Vilna Gon has other things to do. <laughs> That went to the Chai Adam, who is another great, a great rabbi in Jewish history. He, he was the rabbi of, of, of Vilna, who would check your chicken, right? Meanwhile, not to denigrate the Chai Adam, he was, wrote basically the, the book of halacha that was followed until the Mishnah Brewer. So really a very, very, very great. So when we went to see the Vilna Gon, I thought to myself, right now, all of us are going to get a chance to go in to see the Vilna Gaon. In other words, do you understand what I'm saying? Not to pray at his, the place where his remains are. But since there's an aspect of him that's there, we are getting to walk into the office of the Vilna Gaon. And so the idea of going to the grave sites of the great Sadiqim as a chance to visit and to actually meet with them. That was something that just changed the experience for me. So we went on Chai Elul, which is the birthday of Hasidus. Now keep in mind the Vilna Gon excommunicated the Hasidim. <laughs> so to go on Chai Elul, which is the birthday of Hasidus, as a group of 25 Hasidim on Chai Elul to visit the Vilna Gon's kever. And it was so exalted. 
Because, by the way, the Kutzker Rebbe said that in Pshisk, they would say of the Vilna Gon that, like, he was like Moshe Rabbeinu. Okay, only Moshe is Moshe. But they compared him to Moshe Rabbeinu. Even those people who were most directly affected by the ban, like the Talmidim of the Alter Rebbe, were warned not to say one negative thing about the Vilna Gon. And in time, in terms of history, there have been rivalries between different Hasidic sects and communities. And the thing is, is that I heard Reb Shlomo say, this is a, a, a sign of the, the, the lowliness, the lowliness of the Hasidim who don't understand their Rebbe's at all. Because on the outside, it looks like the Rebbe's are fighting. And so if the Rebbe's are fighting, then I have to be a good team player and let me be on my team and oppose the other team. They have no idea what the Rebbe's are actually saying to each other. And the greatest example, I heard it from Reb Shlomo, was about the Shpoli Zaidi and Rebbe Nachman of Breslov. Shpoli Zaidi was, was, was renowned of everyone, of all the opponents, of giving Rebbe Nachman of Breslov the hardest, hardest time. And one of the followers of the Shpoli Zaidi, who was a great tzaddik as well, said, I have wonderful news for you. Rebbe Nachman is no longer alive. And he said, what are you talking about? He was my best friend. And they said, but you, you said so many bad things about him. He said, you think I was saying anything bad about him? He said, I knew that his Torahs were so important for generations from now that I wanted to make sure that he didn't complete his complete tikkun during his lifetime so that he would come back and that his neshama would be there for the generations who need him even more than those who need him today. So when the tzaddikim argue, you don't get involved in the arguments of tzaddikim because you don't have any clue what they're arguing about. And so my great hope in visiting the Vilna Gons Kever as a group of chassidim, you know, who am I, who are we to make peace? But we have to do whatever we can do with a full heart. And so in that spirit, we, we went. And he's buried next to one of the great personages of all of Jewish history, Avraham ben Avraham, who's known as the Gert Tzedek, who is a member of a Polish royal a Polish royal family, and to tell you how intense the anti-Semitism was in that day, it was a capital offense. That means punishable by death to convert to Judaism. Punishable by death. And he was burned alive. He was burned alive. And because he was from such a prestigious, noble family, it was such a black eye to the church of that day, they begged him to convert back to Judea, to, to convert back to Catholicism. And he wouldn't do it. And he gave up his life. And he died Al Kiddush Hashem. And 
By the way, during his lifetime, he became one of the most exalted Kabbalists ever. Where his soul soared to was beyond, beyond. And in the last moments of his life, with the fire burning in front of him, he asked the Vilna Gon, do I walk to my death or should I run to my death? And the Vilna Gon said, run. And to tell you how great Avraham ben Avraham was, the Vilna Gon and the Alter Rebbe of Lubavitch, the founder of Chabad, both vied who was going to have the merit to be buried next to Avraham ben Avraham. And the Soviets, Yamach Shamam, decided that this ancient great Jewish burial place in Vilna with hundreds of years of tzaddikim was the perfect place to build a sports stadium. And they destroyed the cemetery. And they said, you can remove six people. The Vilna Gon was one of the ones that they took to be reburied. And Avraham ben Avraham was another one of the six that were selected to go out. And I don't know how or why, but I laid down on top of the tomb of Avraham ben Avraham. And I daven, and then they tell you what I davened. So I heard from Reb Shlomo that in the last days of Reb Tzadok HaKoyin's life, like right at the end of his life, he was looking at his wrist very carefully, examining, examining, examining the area around his wrist. And they asked him what he was doing. And he said, what I'm doing is what, Rav, what Avraham ben Avraham did right before he died. That he too was examining himself very, very closely before he died. Because he wanted to make sure that the Torah had entered every cell of his being. So lying on the tomb of Avraham ben Avraham, I was davening to God, please, God, let the Torah enter every cell of my being. We had slichos last night. Among the Ashkenazim, we start a little bit later than the Sephardim. The Sephardim in their holiness start Rosh Chodesh Elul. The Ashkenazim start a little bit later toward the end of the month of Elul. We start Motzei Shabbos. And Rosh Hashanah falls out at different places during the week. This year it's going to be on Friday night. It's different times. It falls out on different days during the week. So the question is, if Slichos, if the beginning of our official return to God, the official return is really where, where it gets amped up during Slichos, if that happens Motzei Shabbos, well, sometimes you're going to have more days of Slichos, depending on where Rosh Hashanah falls. Sometimes you're going to have less because the official start is always going to be Motzei Shabbos. So how many days is too many and how many days is too few? Like, what's the rule? And the rule is that you need four days of slichos. 
So if Rosh Hashanah comes too early to Saturday night, then, then you move it to the Saturday night beforehand, to the Motzei Shabbos beforehand. Okay? But you need four days. Why do you need four days? Because before you brought an offering to the Holy Temple, to the Beis Amigdash, you had to examine the offering for four days to make sure there was no blemish in it. So now imagine Avraham ben Avraham checking himself. Imagine, imagine Reb Tzadok HaKon checking himself. And now this is the time when we start to check ourselves because we are the offering. We are the offering that we're bringing before Hashem. For Rosh. And we have to make sure that the offering that we're bringing ourselves, that there's no blemish in it. Now, going into the shul of the Pshisker was such a privilege. And we, when we walked into the, the main area, and it was almost like cavern-like, because there's no electricity. But it was during daytime, so it was still filled with light, but you know, you were at the same time in the shadows, because you were inside. And as you walked in, there was a wall that was opened, and there was a hole in the wall. And the tour guide says, look down below. That was the mikvah. And so we looked into the, we looked into the area where the mikvah was. And later on in the bus, one of the guys said, ah, oh, I didn't have a chance to stand in the area of the mikvah. And I said, yeah, but we stood in the area where the Pshiska Rebbe and the Kutzka Rebbe and the Ishbitzer Rebbe and the Ger Rebbe and the Alexander Rebbe and the Vorka Rebbe, we stood where they stood after they were purified. <laughs> right? What a schus, what a merit, what an honor. We went to see the, the Ohel of the Vorka Rebbe and we traveled down a, a long pathway in the dark a road that went all the way downhill in darkness. And then you took a turn, and then there was a rickety, steep, wooden stairwell that went all the way up to the top of a hill. And on this little, small hill at the top of the hill was this little, tiny building where the Vorka Rebbe was and a rickety, steep wooden staircase where after each step you felt like the wood plank was gonna snap underneath your foot. <laughs> that was the climb up to see the Vorka Rebbe. And I was privileged to tell the story of the Ocean of Tears by the Vorka Rebbe's kever. If you don't know it, Google Ocean of Tears Vorka Rebbe, Rabbi Shlomo Karlobach. And I'll tell you how to spell Vorka. It's V, like Victor, O-R-K-A, like Apple. The Ocean of Tears by the Vorka Rebbe. I won't tell it now, but it's, it's an awesome story. It's an awesome, awesome story. And I'll tell you something else, you know? 
Well, maybe I won't share. The truth is there's so many stories to tell, but I'm just going to end with one last story. And there's no amazing coincidence in this story. And there's nothing really miraculous about it, you could say. Certainly nothing obviously miraculous about it. But I don't know that I've ever experienced something like this before. When we got to Reb Shaila of Kerister, and that first trip that we took last year at this time, our trip began with Reb Shaila of Kerister, and this time it ended with Reb Shaila of Kerister. That was the last stop this time. Reb Shaila was unique among the tzaddikim because really all the tzaddikim are mostly known for their Torah greatness and, and often for the miracles that they wrought. Reb Shaila of Kerister was known for feeding people. People would come and he would greet them with food, like Avraham Avinu. And he would make sure that everyone had food. And he wouldn't even begin to discuss your problems or anything else or anything until he fed you first. And there's nothing like it. There's nothing like it. Reb Shaila, if you want to find a great book of all the miracles that happened, I'll give you one, one story of a miracle of Reb Shaila. There's storks all over Kerastir. This is in Hungary. And if you've ever heard of Toke wine, it's a kind of wine, like you have Chardonnay and things like this. Toke wine is, certain recipes call for it, and it's a very sweet wine, and it's grown right there, like right there. Anyway, it's stork country. And on, on these, like what I think were telephone poles, there are these massive nests, like not normal bird's nests, like huge, huge nests on the top of these wooden poles, huge. Because storks are really big birds. And so one of the stories was that Reb Shaila was about to go into Shabbos and he didn't have fish for Shabbos. Now, by the way, when I first got married to my wife, Erev Shabbos, I was on the phone with my father-in-law, with her father, and he survived World War II. He was in Siberia. And he said, he asked me if we were having fish for Shabbos. And I told him that we weren't. You know, it's customary to serve fish as an entree before whatever the main courses. And then he said to me, my uncle risked his life in World War II to have fish on Shabbos. Well, I can tell you, we never went another Shabbos without having fish, right? He risked his life, his life, to make sure there was fish on Shabbos. So Reb Shaila of Karister was heading into Shabbos 
and they didn't have any fish. And it was almost Shabbos. And he prayed to God. He was standing outside his house and he prayed to God. It's Shabbos and we don't have any fish. And this is one of the stories that's recorded in the book. A stork flew over his head and dropped a fish at his feet. This happened. This is a true story. So when we went to Karastir, it was like, no, you don't go to the mikveh first, you don't go to the, you don't go to the kever first to pray first. They were like, we're, we, we do it here like they do it by Reb Shaila. First go into the dining hall and we're going to feed you. Then once you have a belly full of food and you feel like a mensch, then you can pray for what you need. So they gave us a, a wonderful meal. And now this is the story. And again, just close your eyes, unless you're driving. <laughs> just close your eyes and just try to be there with me with what I'm describing. Because I'm just, gonna, I'm just gonna try to conjure a feeling, that's all. There was about a 10 minute walk from the dining hall to the gravesite. And there was no street lamps. All there was was a sky blanketed with stars on the clearest night. And there was one long paved road that was surrounded by the most beautiful rolling hills and grapevines and vineyards. And it was cool. And there was a line of men walking in the darkness, just lit by the moon and the stars. And there was someone walking behind us, playing the guitar. And it was completely silent. And again, the air was so cool and so clean and the perfect temperature. And all you could see was the silhouettes of the hills in the distance and the vineyards that were surrounding us. And some people were singing. Some people were just walking in silence with the most beautiful music playing as we walked through the darkness in total, utter tranquility, total peace, complete calm, like mamish heaven on earth, as we walked toward the tzaddik. Okay, I'll just leave you with one last thought. People are so hungry, but as Rib Shlomo would quote from the prophet Amos. The hunger that people have, it's not for bread. And the thirst that people have is not for water, but to hear the word of the living God. And every single person who you meet is coming to you to be fed. Every single person who you're interacting with is coming to you to be fed. 
And you don't have to give them a discourse on the Parsha or anything like that. To feed them, all you have to do is to be their friend in that moment, whatever it means to be their friend. Right? Whether it's a hug or whether it's a smile or whether it's a word of encouragement. At that moment, your mom is feeding them. Let's be there for each other. Let's get rid of the rotting in our bones. Right? Let's know that everything that we have is what we need. God may not be giving us what we want every single moment, but God is 100% giving us what we need every single moment. There's no question. You know, I can't not, I have to tell you one more story. So when I was 14, I started going to Rabbi Shlomo Karlbach Shul, which was across the street from my house on 79th Street in Manhattan. I could actually see it outside of my kitchen window. And he was like a father to me. He married me and my wife. He brought me to Torah. You know, alongside with my parents, he was the single most important person in my life. And I remember what I used to love about going to Yeshul was hearing him tell stories about tzaddikim. And the first story that I ever heard from him was about the Riminover Rebbe. And I don't remember the whole story, but there was one detail about this story that stayed with me like I said, I started going there when I was 14. I started keeping Shabbos when I was 24. So it really was like a step-by-step process for me. I tasted so many different things in life. I had so many different opportunities, you know? I really had, like, growing up, a lot of success. I really did. I really did. I was blessed with a lot of things. And meanwhile, as enjoyable as those things were, nothing tasted as sweet as what I heard about the tzaddikim. <laughs> nothing had such a close place in my heart as the lives that the tzaddikim were living. And at a certain point, I got to a point in my life where I realized that I had done most things and Whatever I hadn't done was just going to be a fancier version of what I had already done. And so I started extrapolating. What does this path lead to? What does that path lead to? What does this path lead to? All the quote unquote success scenarios. And I realized they're all dead ends. They're all dead ends because they're all locked into this world. Whereas the pathway of the tzaddikim transcends this world and is forever. And so I had enough brains when I was 24 to say, if I have a choice between a dead end and a path to heaven, what am I doing? 
And it all started with these stories of the tzaddikim. So the first one that I ever remember hearing, and I think it was the first one that I ever heard, was about the Ruminover Rebbe. Now listen to this. This story was like, it was like a, a rope that was tied around me, and I was able to hold on to it and follow it through the darkness of the next 10 years. This image that I'm about to share with you. Okay, there were other things too, but this was a central, this was a central thing. So the Noam Elimelech, we mentioned the Noam Elimelech. I didn't tell you that at the hospitality center there at 2 a.m. I had the best chicken soup of my life. <laughs> Unbelievable, right? That tzaddikim are just, they, they're still feeding you. Like, but your body also, it's incredible. So the Noam Elimelech was already like, you know, like a rabbi, an established rabbi. He's on a carriage and he's going through this town called Riminov. And he passes by this broken down house and on this porch, he sees this young boy and this young boy is starving, like from food, like starvation, starving. And the young boy is dancing and he's praying to God in a state of joy. And the Noam Elimelech says, you know, you know, stop the carriage, I got it. Who is this? And he talks to this boy who's starving, this young boy who's starving. Not metaphorically, like physically starving. And he says, what are you, what's, what, what are you doing? And the young Riminover Rebbe tells him, I'm thanking God for all the things that he's given me. My parents and my life. And this image of this starving boy who can't stop thanking God amidst his starvation, that image guided me through my life and led me to Torah. And the Noam Elimelech said to his parents, let me take this boy and educate him. This is not a regular kid. And that was the beginning of the spiritual education of the Riminova Rebbe. And then when I got married, I find out that my wife's mother is from Riminov, born in Riminov, Poland. Not, not from the Rebbe, but that location. And I had no idea where this trip was going. And then I find out we're going to Riminov. And there I was by the gravesite of the Riminov Rebbe, who's named Menachem Mendel, and I have a son, Menachem Mendel, which is another thing. And I'll tell you something else beautiful about the Riminov Rebbe. I don't know if this is unique among the Rebbe's. I'm not an expert, but I can tell you that it's unusual. In that Ohel, in that little building surrounding his grave, there's one more grave right next to his, and it's the grave of his wife. He's buried next to his wife, which is awesome. 
So we really saw that as a place to daven for shalom bias. Everyone should have shalom bias. It should be peace between husband and wife, between each other. And, wow, to be by the Rimen over Rebbe. And I heard from Reb Shlomo that the Chos of Lublin, he was a student of the Chos of, the Chos of Lublin, the seer of Lublin, that the Chos said to his Hasidim, anyone who hasn't seen the Rimen over Rebbe during their lifetime is going to have to give an account. So Motzei Shabbos, the Hasidim piled into a wagon and they pulled up to Rimenov, to where the Rimenover was. And he comes outside and he sees like this wagon load of Hasidim and he says, you know, why are you here? And they said, the Chos of Lublin, Lublin said that anyone who doesn't see you during their lifetime is going to have to give an account. And he thought, when, when did he say this? And they said back to him, said it during Shabbos. So it was a few hours ago. And the Ruminover reflected and he thought and he said, who knows if it's still true? Who knows if it's still true? Now, if you think the explanation is that the Riminover did anything wrong between over the last few hours? That's not, it's not it at all. The Riminover, in his great humility, thought, you know, maybe I reached a peak moment, and the Chosa, who's so great, sensed me at that moment and said it at that moment. But the Riminover was saying about himself, you know, who am I to say that I'm at that exalted place? Maybe at that moment I was. So what I'm telling you is that we have ups and that we have downs. And Rebbe Nachman of Breslov says that you have to be an expert in rising and you have to be an expert in falling. You have to know how to rise in a way that chas v'shalom, God forbid, that it's like emistic, dveikiskite, true cleaving to God with not, without any trace or shred of, of gaiva, of arrogance. Someone came up to the Kutzkarebi one time and said, teach me how to pray. And the Kutzkarebi said, no. And he says, why not? And the Kutzkarebi said, you just want to know how to pray so you can be better than other people. And we have to be an expert in falling. Which means to understand that after you rise, then you return. And that this is the, the rhythm of the universe. This is how God created us. A lot of people think that if I fall after I rise, I've failed. But no, the angels run and they return. That's the prophecy of Yechesko. Ratzo Visho. They run and then they return. So you have to be an expert in falling as well. And now, for real, I'm going to end on this moment. What's going to happen on Rosh Hashanah, to the best of my understanding, is the following. Hashem is going to look at each one of us 
and he's going to tailor make a year which is going to be the next step for us, the best next step for us based on who we are on Rosh Hashanah. Who, have, who we have become. Who we have become and who we are at that moment. God is going to custom make the best next year for us to take us to the next level. With all the blessings and with all of the challenges. Right? One of the things that people have trouble wrapping their mind around is this concept. Imagine you go to the gym and you get to the point where you can lift, say, 100 pounds, right? And that's a big accomplishment. I got to the point where I can lift 100 pounds. The next day you don't go, ah, now I'm going to start lifting 90 pounds. Do you understand? No one does that. No one does that. You lift 100 pounds, now you're ready for 105 pounds or 110 pounds. You rise to a certain level, and so much, so many of us think that I've now risen to the level where now I won't have any more challenges. I finally got to the place where now, God, don't give me any more challenges because I've achieved an exalted spiritual level. But that doesn't exist. God says, you know something? You've achieved this much. So you know what that means? You're my person. Now I see that you're so responsible. Now I want to give you more responsibility. I want to bless you with more responsibility now. But we experience that as challenge. Do you understand? In this world, we experience that as challenge. But it's growth. It's continued growth. And that's what's going to happen on Rosh Hashanah. God's going to say, this is going to be what you need to bring you to the next level with the, with the blessings and with the challenges based on who you have become right now. So with that mindset, let's all collectively be the person who God will say, you know what the next best step for all these people is? The complete redemption. <laughs> it should be the sweetest year. And, you know, I don't know who listens to these talks, but whoever you are, if you've been listening to, thank you for learning with me and being with me and allowing me to share from my heart. You know, I heard Reb Shlomo say one time that you, you have to need the Torah to live. And, you know, when I share these things, I, I need to be able to share these things to live, to live. So thank you for giving me life. And if you've gotten any life from these words from the tzaddikim, you know, thank you, God, for allowing me to have the privilege to have shared them. Thanks for listening. We do this every week. So join in again next Sunday for a new podcast where we explore the amazingness of life. And review us and send in any comments or suggestions. I'd love to hear them.